Good morning. Thank you very much for coming. I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence. We're joined uh, both by a Bloomberg TV crew this morning and also this event, like all our events, is being podcast. So don't say you weren't warned when and if you speak that your remarks are going to last for posterity. I'm absolutely thrilled that we're doing this event yet again in association with the Cass Business School and also with Breaking Views and also with Taylor Bennett, the recruitment firm. Before I hand over to Alex Brummer, a couple of points. The first is that if we think that Northern Rock is topical, it's worth noting a statistic from Editorial Intelligence's database where we record summaries of every single line of comment and opinion published in the UK. And when I searched on the term Northern Rock a couple of days ago, I brought up about a thousand comment pieces that includes leaders and guest columns and of course regular columns from the likes of some of our panel. And then I put in the search term Iraq and interestingly the same number bar 10, there are 10 more articles that have been written on Iraq than on Northern Rock which is quite astonishing. And then I put in the search term Gordon Brown and uh, Gordon Brown's records began earlier than the Northern Rock scandal. Uh, we began in 2007. And there are just under 3,000 comment pieces attached directly to Gordon Brown. So over a third of uh, the volume of articles on Gordon Brown are devoted to Northern Rock. So that probably explains why the room is full at this time in the morning. Just before I hand over to Alex, a word about breaking views. They arguably have led the discussion and debate about Northern Rock. They've produced a, a brochure of uh, articles on your seat this morning. They are very much the online leaders of business opinion. They reach literally millions of uh, viewers and readers through their affiliations with uh, uh, worldwide publications and also their online digest. And of course their print counterparts, many of them are on the panel this morning. So. I'm going to hand over to Alex Brummer, who apart from being sort of absolutely one of the most award-winning financial journalists of his day, and is the city editor of the Daily Mail and also writes for the New Statesman and the Jewish Chronicle, he is wearing two hats this morning, both as a commentator and as a chair. And uh, it is not without coincidence that his book on the credit crunch and Northern Rock will be published in June. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this, this debate on Northern Rock and its impact on the city, um, um, which I'm very pleased to chair. And thanks edit to Editorial Intelligence, Cass Business School, and everybody else involved for inviting me to do this and to give myself some publicity at the same time for my book, which is being published by Random House. So you all have to go out and buy it, and it'll be much better than that brochure sitting on your chairs, I can assure you. Um, um, <laughs> No, no, of course it won't. Um, that would be a very poor thing for me to say. Anyway, I'm very pleased to welcome on my left-hand side here um, the Right Honourable John McFall, who's Chairman of the Treasury Select Committee. Before I introduce him, can I just say that you know, the Treasury Select Committee has done a brilliant job on Northern Rock and on the whole credit crunch. Um, they were first to the punch. They held hearings very, very quickly. They got in the main principles, and some of those hearings were very, very dramatic. I, I was a correspondent in the United States for for 10 years and attended many Senate hearings, and I thought these were some of the best hearings, some of the most human hearings that I've ever seen. So very many congratulations to John on that, and without any further ado, can I let you open up the debate? Fine, thank you very much, Alec, and good morning, everyone. I'm delighted to be here. Alec mentions the Treasury Committee being to the punch. There was a fortunate element to that in that the Governor of the Bank of England last May or June spoke to me and said that we have four inflation reports every year and it would be good if we kept to those four inflation reports, which meant that Parliament would be returning during the recess. So we fixed on the date of 20th of September to talk about the quarterly inflation report, but it turned into a different agenda for the Governor and for everyone else as a result of that with Northern Rock. So that was the background to that, Alec. But uh, many people in the financial services industry have claimed that the recent troubles on Northern Rock have combined with other changes to damage London, and I think it's been given a bit of weight by the latest Global Financial Centres Index, which shows New York to have closed the gap in London as the number one financial se sector and their speculation that New York has overtaken that. But several people have said that they believe Northern Rock 
has not damaged the long-term reputation. For example, in yesterday's FT with Mervyn Davis, Chairman of Standard Charter, saying that there have lessons to be learned from the industry and for the regulators. And he then jumped to say London's going to be severely damaged as a financial centre. No, I don't agree with that, he said. I absolutely believe London is there at the centre of the financial services industry for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And we're in this situation because of, of a failure of the market, a failure of one company at Northern Rock. And when the governor appeared before the Treasury Committee, he didn't believe that London's reputation had suffered lasting damage. And he said, I don't believe that in a year's time people will look back and say there was any lasting damage to the British banking system. Headlines come and headlines go, and even television pictures come and go. And I cannot believe, and I don't believe, there's any lasting damage to the reputation of the British banking system. But the basic argument in people putting that forward is that one reckless bank has made a problem for us. But is Sock Gen crisis in Paris, does that damage the reputation of Paris as a financial centre? The savings and loan crisis in the United States cost the US taxpayer $500 billion. Uh, did that damage it? No, it moved on. Uh, the issue here is the policy response. And the committee concluded in its report that the Northern Rock crisis, uh, although damaging to the financial services at the time uh, and to the tripartite authorities, could be responded to uh, and could be solved if there was an appropriate policy response. And that is the key issue. I mean, first of all, we must steer clear of the problems that arose from Sarbanes-Oxley in, say, the United States and don't have knee-jerk legislation, but acknowledge that some difficult decisions must be taken. For example, two issues which we proposed in our report was the issue of a deposit protection fund and a prepayment element to that. And that will be one debate for, for the banks and uh, one uh, issue which is still to be resolved. Another, surprisingly... Uh, controversial response, certainly from the people who spoke to me after our report was uh, produced, was that the chief executive and chairman of a bank should have appropriate financial qualifications because we saw that in the Northern Rock case, neither the chairman nor the chief executive. But some people are railing against that in the city. I can't quite understand that, Alex. So we'll no, have I, to. Well, I agree with you. I think it's <laughs> bonkers that, that, that mm -hmm. somebody, you, know, you have a scientist running a bank, but um, there mm -hmm. you go. But but however, uh, it's a policy response that matters, and the responses to that shouldn't be superficial. I mean, the Treasury Select Committee has been, I think, quite bold in saying we want to see a new arrangement with a Deputy Governor of the Bank of England with responsibility for financial stability. That Deputy Governor had been one of the principal advisors to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and if you like, a combined FSA and Bank of England department responding to the Governor. Why did we say that? We said that because everybody who came to the committee, when we asked them the question, did you do your job, said yes. We did our job perfectly. But how did we get into this situation? And nobody answered that. And indeed, when we asked the Governor of the Bank of England who was in charge, Mervyn King said, uh, could you elaborate on that question? Who was in charge? You know, and there was a lack of leadership there. And that lack of leadership needs a policy response where there's grit in the system. Now, I have compared it to my own experience when I was in Northern Ireland as a minister, and I was a health minister, and the policy advisors came to me and said, look, minister, there is a maternity hospital that's going to be shut, and the Royal Colleges are saying there is not a safety case for it. But you, as a minister, can take a brave decision and keep it open. Uh, now, there, there were two or three hundred placard-waving pregnant women outside my office saying that you must keep this open. And McFall's heart, if he'd ruled his head, would have said, great, I'm going to keep it open. But the first time there had been a disaster, whether it be a baby or a mother, the person to blame would be the minister. In other words, there was nowhere for me to hide in that particular situation. And I think that we need a policy response with the tripartite authorities where there is no place for anyone to hide as a result. And one of the biggest and most perplexing questions for us is Philip Dunn, who's a member of my committee and does an excellent job with me. Uh, he, uh, one of the perplexing questions for us was finding like, who's in charge and where were these decisions taken? 
That has got to come out into the open. And if we don't get that out into the open, then we are failures. So, can we respond to it? Yes. Get the appropriate policy responses, Alec. It's a scar on the body of the city politic at the moment, but let's go on with it. Thank you very much, John. And um, can I now hand over to my colleague, um, Anthony Hilton, who's at the Evening Standard, one of the most, even more decorated journalists than I am, I'm, I'm, afraid, to, I'm, I'm afraid to say. And um, I, won't, I won't go through all of his experience, and um, everybody can read what he thinks um, each day in the Standard, where it's extremely pungent and strong, as it has always been. Um, we've known each other for a very long time. I think we worked together um, years ago at The Guardian. We walked down, the, we walked down Pennsylvania Avenue in the snow um, some, years in some years ago in Washington and, and all sorts of other things. So um, anyway, over to Anthony. Well, thanks, Alec. Um, five minutes, five points. Um, clearly, Northern Rock is damaging to the city, but uh, quite honestly, I don't think it matters. I'm astonished this room is full, because um, I don't think Northern Rock is particularly uh, a big issue. I think, I mean, you always get crises, you always get things falling over. And the issue is not that the bank falls over, the issue is how you respond to it. And uh, so, so the fact that Northern Rock went, went under, I don't think, was the problem. The problem was the inept and fumbling six months it took to do something about it. And that is um, an indictment of the government, not of the city. And the damage was done to the impression of government competence, not to the impression of competence in the city. So um, I think that, uh, so, so that's point one. Point two, I think, is on the issue of regulation. Regulation is part of the city's brand. I mean, the, 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 the light touch, flexible regulation is one of the reasons why people um, from all over the world were coming here. Now, you could argue that regulation was dent the image has been dented, obviously. But you know, if you think of the regulator as a goalkeeper, you know, one goal against in ten years is actually not that bad. And uh, even in the parlance, what about equitable life? And um, and, uh, and um, coming in later, chairman, equitable life, in fact, was not uh, was not the same issue. Um, but to continue my point, the the the, the issue on on regulation. Um, uh, the, 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 the bank, sorry, the, the, the Financial Services Authority, by and large, has actually delivered for the city a kind of regulation which has international appeal and which works. They didn't do, they did not acquit themselves with um, great merit on this occasion, but I think we ought to be careful to retain a sense of proportion because after every single banking crisis, and I think this is about the fourth that I can remember going back from 1973, we always get a banking act on the basis of this must never happen again. And the regulators always say, well, we couldn't do it because we didn't have the right powers. You give them the right powers, the next one comes along, it's slightly different and they don't enforce it. It's not the power it's the way that they're enforced. The powers on this occasion existed. The failure was the failure of individuals not doing the job properly. No amount of more regulation will, is going to solve that problem. So I am uneasy that uh, we will, if you like, get, get the equivalent of a Financial Dangerous Dogs Act as a reaction to the, um, to, to, to the problems of Northern Rock. Um, the third point I'd like to make is, you know, if you're worried about Northern Rock, get used to it. Because I will be astonished if we get through this financial uh, crisis, this, the, the, this credit crunch, without at least one investment bank or clearing bank in the world going bust. Um, I think we're only in the very early stages of this meltdown, very early stages. I think it's going to go on for at least another 18 months. And I think that the pyramiding effect of deleveraging is going to make an awful lot of those banks look far more embarrassed than anything that's happened in Northern Rock. So get used to it. Um, just as an observation on this, the, um, the um, relationship of assets to global GDP has tripled in 25 years. That's an extent of the deleveraging. There's no reason. That's the increase in, in stock market prices, art prices, property prices. Just think what's going to happen if that even goes back by half. And uh, arguably, uh, as at a seminar yesterday where they said that uh, the 
degree of um, innovation in the financial community will probably never go back to the levels we've seen in the last couple of years. Um, it might go back to the levels of the late 90s in the city. Well, the levels of the late 90s are half the level of activity that we saw last year. So given that the UK economy is a hedge fund, as I've said before, um, uh, with a bet on financial services, there are really quite serious implications for the city as a whole, which are born of the wider credit crunch, uh, of which uh, Northern Rock, if you like, is, is one small casualty. Um, I think that, uh, and, and John touched on this as much as um, a Labour politician could, the bigger issue in terms of damage to the city at the moment is not Northern Rock and its failure, it's the non-DOMs and uh, the capital gains tax changes. Mervyn King, when he was Deputy Governor, once said to me that uh, there were only two things that could screw up the city. Uh, he said one was an excess of regulation, one was changing the tax regime. And, uh, you know, we, we have um, a government which is contriving to do both. Um, so if bankers need training in how to run, perhaps some of our governors, uh, government could get training in how to govern. Um, the need is equally acute. Um, You've got about five seconds left. To do five seconds your, less. Your last five points. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, I, I think the threat of perception of how the city operates in the world uh, and, and uh, how welcoming it is to the world has, has been damaged, but not by Northern Rock, but because of these other issues. Uh, final point, I suppose, is that, that when we get through this, I think it's a golden age, because um, I think the industrialization of China and, uh, and Asia is going to create huge financial surpluses. The city is very well placed to get those, provided we don't sort of lose the business, not to New York, but to Asia. And one final observation, bearing in mind my time, People say the problem with Northern Rock was um, its business model and getting money from the wholesale markets. I disagree. I mean, if Northern Rock had got all its money from the wholesale markets, we could, we could have called it an SIV and left it to be the bank's problem to sort out. It was the retail depositors in there that caused the problem because they had to be rescued. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much indeed. Um, the next speaker is Simon Nixon, whose booklet sits on your seats um, <laughs> With you, um, he works for BreakingViews.com. I read it in print every day in the Wall Street Journal, but I know a lot of other people look at it. In fact, I was with Martin Sorrell recently, and he was looking at it during our lunch, which um, didn't make for a very good lunch. But um, <laughs> but, um, but he just showed how obsessed he was with the new media, anyway, um, which is probably quite a good thing if you are in the world's largest marketing group. Um, anyway, over to you, Simon. Um, thank you, Alex. <clears throat> um, uh, I think we need to define our terms um, slightly here that in, um, and work out in whose eyes the Northern Rock might have badly damaged the city. I think we can safely discount that it's damaged the City of London's reputation in the eyes of the general public. That there may have been a few people before Northern Rock who saw the city as full of pillars of the establishment and uh, upright, honourable people you trust your life savings with who have subsequently decided that the city is now full of spivs, but I think they were probably pretty few and far between. This, there's also the, um, the, the second group whose eyes it might have been damaged is the commentariat, as editorial intelligence calls it, the um, politicians, journalists, regulators, central bankers who worry about moral hazard and the national interest. Uh, and the third group, of course, is the bankers and city establishments themselves who have to decide whether or not London is a good place to do business. Um, uh, for them, the key thing that they look for in a financial centre, one of the things that matters to them when choosing a financial centre, in their dreams, the financial centre would offer them uh, the opportunity to take reckless risks and uh, without having to suffer the consequences, um, to gamble with other people's money, and best of all, if it's 50 billion of taxpayers' money. Um, for them, I think, I think it's pretty fair to say that Northern Rock has not been, um, uh, for, for the city, I, um, a damaged badly the city's reputation in the eyes of financial institutions. In fact, the only time I think I came across bankers really apoplectic during the Northern Rock crisis was when they really thought for a moment that Mervyn King might actually stick to his guns and insist on not bailing out banks. Um, it was only, uh, luckily, that, only, that period only lasted a few weeks. And uh, before long, Mervyn King was um, merrily accepting any old crap as collateral. And uh, for any period of time, and and the, and the city quickly calmed down and um, and realised that all was well in the world. Um, the fact that the government was um, uh, that the government seriously contemplated for um, the best part of five months actually allowing 
um, anybody who had a credible or anybody with a business plan to um, to use 50 billion pounds of taxpayers' money to try and revive the bank was just the icing on the cake. I think. Um, it, I think most people in the city regarded it as extraordinary that 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 was actually seriously contemplated, and the fact that the government eventually bowed to what was clearly inevitable from the start. Um, I don't think will have seriously disappointed the city, apart from those who were hoping to make enormous amounts of money out of owning Northern Rock. Um, but even so, that there was £200 million worth of fees to spread around, so um, no, not too much harm done. Um, I think that, the, um, that the, um, the more important issue is this issue of uh, moral hazard and the credibility of the UK's public institutions, particularly the Treasury, the Financial Services Authority and the Bank of England. Um, I mean, clearly, there's been a lot of talk about Alistair Darling's decision-making um, and whether or not um, and, and whether or not he's up to the job. But I think, in a sense, there's almost... I mean, clearly, there are very big issues there. But I think almost there's a, there's a, a bigger issue about just the, the quality of advice and decision-making that was taking place. There were six weeks of dither before when Northern Rock first announced that it was first revealed to the Bank of England that it had problems before it finally, the run on the bank started, during which um, nothing seems to have happened. And after that, there were five months before the bank was finally nationalised. I think this all plays into what's already been touched on elsewhere, this wider, the wider issues of the non-DOM tax and the capital gains tax, um, which both had to be um, revised um, because the government had admitted that they had been poorly drafted and uh, you know, that mistakes had been made. Um, I think this, this reels is a real problem with all three of these institutions. Um, apparently 50% of the Treasury has been there only three years. 80% has only ever worked for um, Brown and Darling as chancellors. Uh, we've seen the politicisation of the Treasury just like the rest of the civil service with... Um, favourites being catapulted to top jobs. There's, there's a real issue about the lack of experience and independence throughout the Treasury. And I think we saw that throughout this process. It took them, um, um, with, with, with the quality of the decision-making throughout these issues. Then we've seen with the Bank of England, we've seen in the last 10 years, it's been stripped of half its functions, it's lost prestige, uh, used as a parking place for civil service. <laughs> The head, of financial, the head of financial stability was an ex-home office uh, civil servant. Um, the MPC has this opaque um, uh, appointments process. The Financial Services Authority can't currently find a chairman. Um, there's um, um, no city figures. They went to replace the current chief executive of the Financial Services Authority, Hector Sands. The FSA failed to find somebody from the city to come in and take his job. I think there's a that the, the real issue for the city is the um, public is the is that the city hates uncertainty and instability, and I think that what the Northern Rock thing has fed into is a wider narrative where people don't understand where the government's coming from, what it's trying to achieve, um, where the decision make how the decision making is being made, and that creates a, a real anxiety in the city, and I think that is far more damaging ultimately for the UK, a country that has a massive trade deficit and a budget deficit that relies on the confidence of foreign investors. So I don't think it's the real issue is about the damage to the reputation of the city, it's about the damage to the reputation of the UK generally in the UK economy and I think that is what ultimately will be the, the thing that's um, the legacy of this Northern Rock debacle. Thank you Simon, that was fascinating and um, I have to say I, if I'm allowed to agree with you on, on the FSA I sort of agree with you about the level of it and in the government institutions involved in this whole crisis that there was a, a lack of historical knowledge and background and means of handling a big economic and financial crisis. I think that's, that's been very evident. And Vince Cable um, has emerged um, through this whole um, event and right, going right back to when it first broke last summer when he was writing columns in our paper for us and very kindly. Um, about the, about the explosion of credit. I think that's where it all began. And, and when Northern Rock got into trouble, he was first to the punch. And I think um, I was with Alistair Darling um, earlier this week, and he actually verbally said that you know, Vince Cable was first to the, first to the punch on nationalisation. He got, got the solution right first. Um, they went through this long process of trying to flog it off to private, the private sector, and it didn't work. 
and maybe they'd have saved themselves a lot of grief if they'd have reached the conclusion that Vince reached um, much earlier on. So Vince has added to his stature, which was already very high from his period as temporary leader of the Lib Dems, and um, we're very pleased to have him on the panel this morning and hand over to you now. Well, Alex, thank you very much, and I'm sorry I arrived late and therefore I haven't picked up on some of the earlier contributions. Um, the question is about the reputation... Oh, by the way, you've only got five minutes. Yes, it's about reputational damage... And I think there are several respects in which there has been serious damage. The first one has already been touched on, which was the behaviour, the extreme behaviour of some lending institutions. And as Alex has just pointed out, uh, Northern Rock was at the extreme end of a particular business model which relied on really quite le risky lending at the peak of the housing boom and a high reliance on wholesale markets. Um, I wasn't the only person who was drawing attention to it. There were probably people in the audience. I remember well over a year ago, the Northern Rock was being singled out in the financial press as an as extraordinarily and unsustainable form of, of, of business activity in banking. Secondly, there was a failure of supervision. John McFall's committee has, has already described this. I'm still not entirely clear in my own mind which was the, whether the problem was that the FSA didn't see what was going on or did see what was going on and didn't see it as a problem or did see it as a problem and didn't know what to do about it. But anyway, whatever exactly the problem was, the FSA was slow to identify the problem and certainly very slow to act on it. Uh, thirdly, it's, uh, this whole episode exposed the fact uh, that there wasn't a clear plan to deal with the emergency situation of, of a banker of lender of last resort intervention. Um, we've all brought up on economic textbooks which described what lender of last resort intervention actually meant. It very rarely happens, certainly not for a substantial bank, and there didn't appear to have been a game plan, a war plan as to how you deal with this in practice. Um, and then finally, there was what some people in the city would regard as the negative externalities as a result of a nationalisation. As um, Alex has just pointed out, some of us believe that once the government had lent substantial amounts of taxpayers' money, it had no alternative but to go down this road, because otherwise it had no effective control of what the bank was doing. Shareholders remained in effective control. Uh, and there was always the risk of an outcome emerging which, in which the private partner was taking, uh, getting all the benefits and the taxpayers left with the risk. So I, I don't think it had any choice once a substantial amount of government funding had been advanced. But for all those reasons, a great deal of damage has been done. But that's the history, that's the past, and we're not living in the past. And I would say, looking forward, uh, this could be turned around in a positive way or it could get worse. And there are several specific issues which need now to be addressed, which will determine whether we come out positively or negatively, ultimately. First of all, there's a whole set of questions around the granite issue, what this means, how much continued exposure there is, what will happen when the granite mortgage um, flow has to be triggered again. Uh, none of us actually know the answer. I've written to the Chancellor. There is a set of questions which have been put down tomorrow, Treasury questions, to try and elicit answers. There's a, lock, a, a complete lack of clarity about what this means. Secondly, we don't yet know how the nationalised Northern Rock Bank will develop a business strategy. Will it take advantage of state ownership to attract deposits and build up its mortgage, its uh, retain a high mortgage lending share? Will it become highly conservative? Uh, this is not clear. Um, there are pressures from the European Union and potentially from our own competition authorities, but we don't know whether it will exploit its position of public ownership in terms of trading in the market or not. Um, thirdly, success or failure depends on the eventual sale. You know, when will it be sold? How much will it be sold for? Will the taxpayer clear its nose on this transaction or not? Big uncertainties. Um, fourth, future intervention policy. We're going to be debating this in Parliament, new legislation on deposit um, insurance and on the new rules governing bank intervention. Again, the government's put out some proposals there's controversies between the parties on this, but we don't know what model is finally going to emerge, let alone whether it's going to be successful. And I think the final point I would make, which is probably the big issue, which is what all of this means for the future of banking, or certainly major retail banking. We've had in the past a very unreal world in which banks have operated apparently as normal commercial players, but knowing that deep down 
because they're all underwritten by the government. And that clearly wasn't sustainable, and it certainly wasn't sustained in this instance. So banks have really got to go in one of two directions. Either they're going to become effectively a highly regulated set of utilities, or they're going to become genuine competitive institutions without state protection, without a lender of last resort facilities, but without deposits guaranteed. Two very different models. Uh, we don't know which way they're going to go, and depending on which way they go, and whether there is clarity over that issue depends very much, I think, ultimately on the reputation of the banking system. Thank you very much, um, Vince. That was very good. And um, our last speaker, um, fortunately we have somebody from the world who was in the world of banking. Um, we have Peter for the Management Education Fellow here at CAS, um, and he joined the CAS Business School's PhD programme in 2004 from Citibank, or Citigroup, or City, or whatever we call it now. I think it's just plain city. And he must be rather glad that he's here rather than there, I should think, at the moment, as they tot up their losses and pass the hat around the Middle East and Asia and so on, trying to put their balance sheet back together again. Um, anyway, P over to you, Peter. Hi. You know, there's, there's money to be made in adversity. <coughs> now, I don't want to disagree with what anybody's said, and in fact, most of what I had planned to say has been said, and certainly on Vince's last comment, um, we need a fundamental rethink of what banking is. And I, <clears throat> I will be speaking quite a bit in the next uh, few days and this afternoon, in fact, on a new model of banking to separate out what's the traditional uh, lending and deposit banking from what's largely become hedge fund activities of most of the investment banks and, and combined banks today. But when we look at the reputation of Northern Rock and the city and how, how badly has it damaged it, I, I would agree and say that it's, it's hardly. And in fact, Northern Rock largely will blow over. People will forget it relatively soon. Um, the pundits will certainly keep reminding us of how much the taxpayer has at stake and how much the taxpayer is going to lose, because um, I don't think it's going to end up all that positively. But uh, frankly, I think the government should take a point of view in saying there were mistakes. Uh, this is part of having an innovative regula regulatory regime. Um, innovation isn't perfect. It always does have errors. And we're going on from there. We're going to try and make it better. But on the city, I think we need some, some more perspective. And I was, was in a, quite a literary mood when I was thinking of what to say this morning. And the, city, um, the city's woes it's not an in-the-beginning kind of story. You know, if we think back um, 15 years ago, well, those of you who've got as gray hair as mine or, or as little, you can remember, well, probably British and Commonwealth, Polypack, Guinness. Gosh, a few years later, we had BCCI and we had Maxwell. It wasn't a few years after that we had Bearings and then a couple of years, Marconi and Equitable. So it, it hasn't been a glamorous city. Um, and at the same time, um, probably a, a better literary illusion, I think, to me, was it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And for those of you who um, don't remember the rest of Dickens' line, it goes, it was the age of wisdom and it was the age of foolishness, which sort of describes how smart people have lost lots of money recently. Um, and uh, the, the tale of two cities um, is exactly what it's about. Um, there is the domestic city, and the domestic city which is part of Northern Rock in a certain way, hasn't really been growing in leaps and bounds over the last couple of decades. The growth in the city is from the other city. The other city is this international, I was going to say non-domestic city, but I didn't want to <coughs> get caught in that. But the, the, um, <coughs> the international city is where it's, uh, where it's come from for the last few decades. And through our location, internationalness, um, the, the international community that's lived here, and that part of the city is going to have some big problems. It's got them now, and they're going to get worse, and it's going to be pretty ugly for what's gone on. A lot of um, the growth in the city has been through um, innovation um, in securities. Um, I actually do know what CDOs are. I can tell you what CDO squares are and CDO cubes and CSOs and the rest. But, but um, <laughs> I think you'd all fall asleep by the time I finish the first one. But no, and that business has employed lots and lots of people in the city, and that business is largely going to go away. Um, the sad part is the city needs that business, so it's going to have to come back, and we're going to have to finish, fix it and figure out how to, how to make it work better. Uh, looking at 
you know, we are regulation. Some of the, um, you know, we've, we've talked about the failings sort of of the regulatory regime, but the complexities of it are stunning. When we think about, you know, UBS recently lost 18 billion US dollars, right? Do you know who regulates UBS? It's actually a group. It's the um, Swiss National Bank, it's, it's uh, the FSA, and the US regulators. There's something about threes that doesn't work well, I think, in regulation. Um, but not much more than a year ago, when we get back to reputation, remember the city was really on the top of the world. Remember how, how many committees did New York form about how great London is? And I think we all have to, again, put it in perspective and say, were we really so wonderful then? And you know, we, we're, we, our strength is in our ability to innovate. But if you look back, well, the U.S. actually was much more about its own shortcomings post-Sarbanes-Axley. They realized that they turned foreigners away. And that was starting to become a big issue. And for the U.S., the foreign international business was always the 20 business in the 80-20 rule. It was always the second-class business. And, and they missed that. And, and they were trying to figure out how to do it and how to learn from us. So you know, for them, I think they've gotten it. We're slipping a little bit. They figured out where the game has to be. But they may be too late also because the Asians may have picked up on the opportunity. They've got the money, and maybe the business should move that way. So thinking about it, you know, the domestic opportunity has, hasn't been growing. It, it is the international opportunity, and that's what we really have to focus on fixing and making it better. And probably to, to, to finish these comments within the five minutes, I was going to say um, an apologies to, uh, to, to William Blake. Uh, but you know, England and, and Scotland's uh, green and pleasant land isn't exactly the best place for scale manufacturing, scale agriculture. I don't, while Scotland's beaches are really lovely, uh, I don't think they'll be warm enough to swim in for about another 100 years. So what we do is we're an international service center here. And we need to focus really well on getting regulation right so that international businesses stay and want to be here. And right now, we're floundering really badly. Thank you very much, Peter. Before I um, hand over the roving mic to whoever wants to ask questions of the panel, um, I'm, I'm told that I'm allowed to make a few chairman's comments myself. So I'm going to quickly do that, but very, very briefly. Um, the first one is to say that um, I actually don't, I mean, the, the, the issue here has been about reputation. I actually wonder whether there's any, been any reputational damage at all. Certainly as far as most of the country is concerned, if you look at the polling around Northern Rock, it seems to have had absolutely no impact at all on the general public in Britain. It's not being talked about in the dog and duck at all. Um, um, I know there's been some tracking polling done by the government which shows that a minor blip. The thing which caused most anguish to people in this country was the, uh, the loss of the tax discs, um, the two tax, tax discs, which did scare people to death. And actually the polling really, the government's support really dipped very strongly and their reputation for competence really, really strongly at that point. And, th and that was nothing to do with the City of London, of course. That was to do with some American courier which, um, which messed up a contract in some kind of way. Um, so that was just a sort of interesting aside. And as far um, what I think people sometimes miss is they say, oh, God, the city, it's awful. People are going to be leaving, non-DOMs, CGT. But I noticed in the middle of all this crisis, one of the large, world's largest financial groups, GE, decided it was going to move its headquarters to London while all of this was going on, which didn't seem to me like a vote against um, what the city of London was doing at the moment and what Britain was doing at the moment. So that was the first point. Second point what I was going to say was that um, actually, you know, we've, we've talked about Northern Rock. We've been fantastically parochial talking about the city. Um, Peter's raised one or two more global and international issues, and so Simon. But this was really a huge international problem. It began with huge amount of greed in Wall Street, where they were dying to get their hands on high-yielding assets, these subprime mortgages, which were absolute garbage. And they sucked them in, and they bought originating companies, and they drove the originators to produce more and more of this stuff so they could get the yields. So um, when we, we keep on focusing on the rock, and of course it was very badly handled here in London, but actually there was all around the world there were banks going down, and we, ca we kind of forget that, that, you know, countrywide financial in the States had to be rescued, New Century had to be rescued, IKB in Germany has been rescued no, no less than three times, two of the Landers Bank and have been rescued, and so on, and there's been a whole series of these kind of spatch cost re Scott rescues. One of the reasons, actually, that we're going to get away with the European Union 
um, with the rescue, the nationalisation of the rock, is because of what's happened in Germany, because they can't say to us, no, you can't rescue the rock, when actually there's been all these other rescues which have been going on quietly around the edges. It's the second thing. And the third thing really is about regulation in London. Um, the Financial Services Authority looks to be a great regulator. Brilliant idea, all singing, all dancing. It'll regulate everyone from the back street um, mortgage broker, um, car insurance broker, and so on, right through to the large financial institutions. What a great idea to pile them all together in one great institution. But it has one really serious fault. There is no serious regulatory culture in this country. That never have we had the kind of regulatory culture which exists inside the FDIC, inside the Securities and Exchange Commission, and so on. People want to work in those organisations. Young lawyers, young people working in the financial sector die to work in that. Two years working in the, in the SEC on your CV, really having a go at what's going on in Wall Street is a fantastic thing to have on your, on your CV and in your career pattern to go in, to come out, and so on. But we haven't managed to create that kind of regulatory culture in the UK. And I think that's where the great fault line lies in why the city has a real problem with its regulatory regime. Anyway, over to the floor, and let's have a microphone. And there's a roving mic. This gentleman, please. And could you identify yourselves when you ask your question, please? And if you could speak into the mic because you're going onto an iPod, iBroadcast or whatever it is, and they need to be able to hear your voice very clearly. Thanks, Alex. No pressure, then. Um, Ian Anderson, Cicero Consulting. I, I'm just interested in the the comments uh, around the obviously the public policy response to this and john you you alluded to this um and to, to vince and to, to peter's comments about a new model for banking um professor david miles has talked about some kind of uh fannie mae freddie mac solution in the uk to reinvigorate the security the securitization market given the comments of the panel this morning should there be a public policy response to reinvigorate the securitization market or not? John, do you want to go first? Well, the Financial Stability and Transparency Report, which the Select Committee came out with the other day, had a number of recommendations for policy responses. And first, to pick up Alex's point, the issue of product complexity. You know, we have moved from the originate and hold model to the originate and distribute model. And one of the questions that the Treasury Select Committee members all of us have been asking the governor of the bank and the regulator over the past two or three years is, where is the risk? And what we were told is that, look, don't worry about the risk because, or largely speaking, we told that, don't worry about the risk because it's sliced and dice and it means that no one institution will blow up uh, as a result of that. Well, you know, where are we now? So that issue of product complexity and the risk is really important. And I think we've got to follow the risk somewhere. And somebody made the point about CDOs. We had a chief executive of one of the investment banks before the committee, and I asked him what a CDO was. And he says, well, I'm not here to discuss issues such as that. Now, I think that's symptomatic of the whole situation. If you can get a chief executive of a CDO giving us a simple explanation of what that is, then there's real problems. It so happened that we had a trusty Wall Street guy, Edward Corrigan from Goldman Sachs, who incidentally they withdrew from the subprime market early. Uh, Edward made a really good fist of giving us a definition of a CDO squared, right? But uh, there you are, that's what you've got. So product complexity, uh, that is really important in that aspect. Also heed the warnings. The FSA and the Bank of England in 2007 were sending out warnings to people about uh, could be Mervyn King, sorry. Oh, right. I'll get this. <laughs> we'll get rid of that. Uh, about warnings to uh, to people in the banking sector, nobody took them on whatsoever. So what the select committee? Sorry about this. What the select committee is oh, saying oh. is that companies need to take. I'm trying to get this stopped. Uh, companies need maybe, to maybe we've been uh, talking for too long. I think yeah. <laughs> companies need to take heed of those warnings. And what we are saying as a committee is that the companies need to address that at board level and then respond to the FSA and the bank. And we've said to the bank, uh, don't send out a whole host of issues. Top two or three issues, what are the risks? And get companies to look at it. Because the risk committee at Northern Rock hadn't looked at the situation. One of the questions we asked of them when they came before them was, well, look, if you're experienced bankers, can you not ask your chief executive why you're doing so well as Northern Rock? For example, 19% of the new mortgages in the first half of 2007 
third thing in terms of international and public policy response, the credit rating agencies deeply conflicted. Deeply conflicted. You know, they work with the issuers to devise the products and they also do extra work from them. That needs to change. In Basel II, how, how do we change the current perverse incentives, you know, by sort of meeting the capital adequacy require the capital adequacy requirements, reducing that, and we need a Basel II for liquidity as well. Still a quick word? Yeah, just two quick points. I, I mean, the government's already acquired responsibility for £100 billion pounds worth of mortgage, Northern Rock mortgages. I, I don't think we want to acquire responsibility for all the other mortgages, which is what you eventually finish up doing if you go down the American Fannie Mae road. Uh, and the underlying problem with the breakdown of securitization is the lack of trust, isn't it? And, you know, and if banks don't trust each other, you know, why would we trust them? I mean, this is, it's a fundamental problem of trust, and the government can't solve that. Um, I mean, there are, the, each bit of the institutional network that makes up the securitization of markets is now going to have to be rebuilt, starting with the rating agencies, which have lost credibility because they're not trusted, and there's a conflict of interest, and that's got to be built up through their own behavior and through regulation. But simply acquiring the government to intervene to refloat the securitization market seems to be fundamentally wrong. Well, Simon, do you want to say something on behalf of the commentariat? I think that it's a dangerous route to go down um, that, okay. that's being proposed. I mean, that, but it is one I, I fear that we will go down. We've always seen the, in the US, we've already seen an enormous amount of public policies response, firstly in t terms of efforts to try and bail out the monoline insurers. We've seen uh, changes to the mandates of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Um, we've seen um, stimulus packages or whatever. And I think that there's a real danger of, uh, of moral hazard in the, in the financial system where we've come, we've come to a point where we've just been lived through the most extraordinary credit bubble. Um, and clearly the US and the UK in particular are very, very... Um, have become incredibly imbalanced in their economies. But I think that if we really um, go down the route, we have to be very, very careful of going down the route of expecting governments to, um, to bail out the markets in this way. I think that it just, the, it's a slippery slope. Um, and, uh, and I think that if we did go down that route, we would have to, as Vince says, we'd have to think very, very carefully about how we regulate the banks at the same time. I think these things would have to be done in tandem, but we certainly can't just write blank checks to the financial system. And I said earlier, I think that the that what the city um, wants more than anything else is to be able to take risks without having to take responsibility. And I think that if we start bailing out the financial system without imposing that responsibility on the financial system, then we will be in trouble. To the floor, then. Um, gentleman over there. Oh. In the corner over there, Martin van der Veer, over there. Yeah. Hi, Martin van der Weer from The Spectator. Um, this, this may be rather naive. Uh, question to put to you, but if it is, no doubt you'll, you'll tell me why. Um, one aspect in which I think the city has been damaged by Northern Rock is that the city itself, not its regulators, but the banking community itself, seems at no point to have come together in any way in order to try and come up with a solution of its own. We have one historic shining example of that happening in 73, 74 with the lifeboat where under the good offices and strong arm of the governor of the Bank of England at the time, the banks came together, rescued a large number of failing small banks, admittedly, uh, bailed them out, saw them through, and in the end didn't take substantial losses. That was in an era when there was a, a genuine banking community, a much greater sense of a sort of brotherhood of the British um, leading high street banks and so on. Perhaps that's all gone. But it's all very well saying, well, we're certainly not lending to this thing in the interbank market and the regulators have made a complete hash of it and that's it. But nothing that I saw happened in which the banks came together and said, in order to protect the good name of British banking, how can we parcel this out between us? It's not uh, unlimited losses ahead as bearings was, which was why it didn't work with bearings. Is that too simplistic? No, you've lived through all of this, so you, <laughs> yes. So you've, see, you've seen all of this happen in the past. Yes, I, I must admit, I, I, I think that the current crisis has a lot of similarities with 1973, but that's a, a slightly different issue. 
I, I think that uh, the, the Peter touched on on the reason why it didn't happen this time around, in that we have the domestic city and we've got the international city. And um, most of the banks and most of the money in the city is international, but Northern Rock was seen as a domestic problem. And so there wasn't a commonality of interest in the city about what was uh, a domestic issue. And I think that was essentially, uh, well, that was one reason why it couldn't happen. And the other is that, uh, you know, the whole essence of banking has moved on. It is much more commercial, much more, as it were, self-centered, much more focused on its own shareholder value and unwilling to take on the, uh, the dangers or, and the losses that would come from, or the potential losses that would come from a rescue like that. So I... I think that those days have gone, and um, you know, many efforts were made to bail it out, but I, I, I just think that, that uh, that's one of the prices we've paid for the internationalization. The I, think, I think Peter wanted to come in on this. I would, would go quite a step further and say it's interesting to look at what the profit could have been to all the people who came in to advise Northern Rock and the government if it was killed and sold off or broken up between Citigroup, Merrill Lynch, Blackstone, and Goldman Sachs, the fees would have been in the billions to see it dead. I mean, there was, when you look at their financial incentives to break it up and sell off the pieces would have been unbelievable M&A business as well as securities business. So quite the contrary of preserving <coughs> reputation, it was, wow, this is an opportunity. Those people didn't all flag to advise because it was gonna be seen as a glorious name after that they saved. John, I know you've got to go in a moment, so do you want to just come in on this quickly? Yeah, I think certainly, you know, one of the uh, features of our inquiry was that we had quite a number of people contacting us, both formally and informally, and I'd spoken to probably about 20 or 30 really influential people who are around at the moment, but were also around years ago. And I can echo Anthony's point, is that those days are past as a result of that, but if I could just give an example of the you know the international dimension of globalisation and a couple of the issues that the Treasury Committee has been involved in, we have conducted an inquiry into private equity, and we'll be looking at hedge funds and sovereign wealth funds uh, over the next few months. Uh, one of the issues of private equity that has resulted is that quite a number of people have contacted members of the committee, and uh, in particular myself on the way forward because they realise they're in a globalised world and in private equity they're coming out with a code of conduct with the Walker response and Walker was a direct response to the Treasury Committee announcement of that inquiry. Andrew Lard's response was a recognition of that as well. No doubt we'll have sovereign wealth funds and by the way I think sovereign wealth funds have been beneficial. You know, you talk about the city group, it should maybe be called the Mideast group as a result now of what's happened with the sovereign wealth funds, you know, but uh, what's happened, we've got a globalised world here and we need a globalised response. And I think all of us, politicians and city people, have to realise that and maybe up our game in a globalised way. And I can see the start of that with the private equity and the hedge funds. There's a gentleman with the orange tie in the, in the left-hand corner over there who's had his hand up patiently. Um. Thanks very much. Tony Halmos, City of London Corporation. Um, as the um, City's Director of PR, you're probably going to say, well, you would say that anyway, but anyway, I'm going to say it. Uh, take, make your own judgment. Uh, I was, uh, I think it was about a year ago, uh, uh, I was sitting where, at the front where you are, uh, doing a session in here, EI, etc., uh, on London versus New York. So it was a year ago, so before all the summer turmoil. And uh, in the, uh, I was reading it the other day, in the EI write-up of the event, uh, I forget who, who uh, Julia had writing it up for her, but um, the, the comment was that I was, in effect, the most boring person on the panel. And, and the reason I was the most boring person on the panel, according to this comment, uh, comment uh, in, written up, was that um, I'd been very careful in not saying it's all wonderful and London's taken off and New York's left behind and you know, we won all the gold medals and so on. Uh, not that other people have been going there. danger of doing it again. Well, <laughs> well, maybe. Thank you very much. Anyway, the point is that uh, London, um, uh, London uh, was on certain numbers ahead. And the question to the panel is, uh, whatever the precise numbers at the moment, and, and reference was made earlier to that, uh, we've got to be very careful uh, about avoiding any of that hype. And that's not what this is about. But the key question really is that 
and I wonder if the panel can, can, can comment on this, how do we ensure that the fundamentals that affect reputation of the city and the standing of the city, regulation, tax, infrastructure in particular, how can we ensure that those are handled in a long-term and steady way and that there are no knee-jerk reactions on tax in the budget, on regulation in terms of what comes in the next few months, and on infrastructure, obviously long-term, and we get the right decisions? And the worry uh, the city has, and the question to the panel is, how can the city persuade the government that these things do need worrying about and sorting, but in a long-term, sensible and steady way and not a knee-jerk way? Vince, do you want to have a go at that? Well, I think part of the answer is, I think Anthony Hiddleton gave a few moments ago when he made this distinction between the domestic economy and the international banking. And the problem is these two things coexist. And those of us who are involved in domestic politics have to be conscious that part of the city's role is domestic in character, not just through domestic uh, retail banking. And uh, taxation is a very good example of that. I mean, the city found it impossible to understand why domestic politicians uh, won't simply overlook the issue of non-domiciled taxpayers. Um, but actually, they, they live here. And it's impossible to explain to our constituents who pay 40% marginal rate of tax that there are people here who, whose only connection with abroad is that their dads were born there. Uh, who effectively opt out of the UK tax system and um, you know, take advantage of a variety of loopholes that are not available to everybody else. And this is an issue of domestic tax policy. We can't operate. It is simply isn't practical to operate in what economists call an enclave economy, where the city just exists in, in isolation under its own rules with its own tax policies and completely isolated from the rest of the UK economy. It just completely cannot function that way. And I think the city's got to understand that. John, um, Anthony raised the issue of dangerous dogs legislation. I mean, are you, yeah, I mean, you've made lots and lots of recommendations. Some of them seem to me very strong <laughs> and very good, but um, are you fearful that we'll rush into, into unnecessary rules well, and regulations? I sympathise with Anthony, and I've seen, I've seen a, if you like, a sort of a terrier dogs legislation response by the Chancellor to the private equity issue. The Treasury Committee undertook that inquiry and made recommendations. And the Chancellor came out in the Financial Times last um, year, at the end of last year, and said there'll be no knee-jerk reactions. The Financial Times came on to me and said, what do, you, what do you make of that in terms of a response to your committee's proposals? And I said, he's doing the right thing because he can do it in the budget. But what happened is the Chancellor, to me, made a knee-jerk reaction on it. And what, what's happened is the big issue in private equity is management fees. And the Chancellor's not touched that. So he's not hit the right button in terms of private equity and caused a little bit of a stushy as a result of that. You, everybody knows what that word is, isn't it, Alec? But, uh, <laughs> you know, so therefore that non-knee-jerk reaction element is extremely important. And to take the comments there in terms of regulation attacks, I think there needs to be constant relations between the city and the government. And I know the high-level uh, business group has been meeting uh, with the government, and I think that's got to st uh, keep on going forward. Because if you look at, again, back to the word stushy, what we've got at the moment, we're talking about the tax, the non-DOMs. That's some like £800 million, 0.2% of the tax revenue. We're talking about CGT. That'll draw in about £5 billion. You know, that's about 1% of the tax revenue. Compare that with income tax at £150 billion, VAT at £80 billion. So, in a sense, we're concentrating on the piffling things and forgetting the big things. So were you disappointed that, 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 that Darling said he was going to wait for your proposals from your select committee reports before he put forward a white paper about banking reform and then sort of kind of drove over them by largely ignoring what you'd said in your in, in your in your in your in your hit from your hearings. Well well Philip's on the committee and I'm sure Philip will have a ready made answer to that. Something can find Philip Dunn. Philip Dunn uh, somebody give uh, Philip Dunn come a in on that. microphone. Thank you. Uh, thank you John. Uh, don't introduce yeah. yourself. Philip well. Dunn, I'm a member of John's the Treasury Select Committee. Well, we've already had a piece of legislation which came on the statute book last month in the space of a day, which is the nationalisation bill for Northern Rock, but it was called something different, and it provided the government with the opportunity to nationalise any bank or building society in the next 12 months. It was completely disproportionate uh, response to the problems created by Northern Rock, and it provided the Treasury as the centre to manage any such 
um, uh, national, subsequent nationalization, rather than, as John has identified, we said in our report, uh, we should, that this should be managed by the Bank of England. Uh, and the Chancellor had previously indicated in his consultation document indicates that he'd like it to see it managed in the Financial Services Authority. And as Simon was saying uh, earlier, the Treasury has demonstrated through the capability review that there is a lack of, of historic expertise at managing uh, financial affairs within the Treasury. So they are not the right people to be uh, charged with this responsibility, in my view. And one of the problems um, that was identified, I think, by Anthony earlier on is that we've had, we have a banking crisis in this country every 10 years. Every country has a banking crisis every 10 years. Um, we were lucky that this banking crisis happened to occur to a, an, essentially a domestic company. Because when the tripartite arrangement was set up 10 years ago, we established in our committee that there was no stress testing undertaken of a significant financial institution. The stress tests were all done on relatively small institutions because that's what had happened in the past. If we, uh, in the new global world that we now live in, if one of the uh, global banks was to go down, we are in, uh, in the situation where moral hazard has to apply because there is no uh, regulator capable, no, no nation capable of taking a big bank onto its balance sheet. Um, and, and I think that's the reality that we're in. I think what John was saying earlier, and I'm glad that he picked it up, um, that what we need to do internationally is to look at why we've set up Basel II, which reduces capital adequacy requirements on banks, makes it easier for them to leverage. Uh, we need to look at that. Why it is that we have credit rating agencies who have now only, I think, less than 150 AAA-rated sovereigns, financial institutions, and corporates in the globe, but over 30,000 special purpose vehicles with AAA ratings. That was entirely motivated by their own self-interest. This is where we need to look internationally at setting up a regime which will allow for better international uh, supervision to reduce the risk of these things happening because the next one won't just be a domestic issue in this country, it'll affect the whole world. I think John wanted the last word on this. Just quickly, on Monday we are having a debate in Parliament specifically on the Treasury Committee's recommendations, so I don't think the debate is over yet, uh, Alex, and I think there's a lot to ponder in this situation. The FSA, for example, it was a real serious oversight with Northern Rock, and if you read our report, it's laid out there, chapter and verse, and indeed the FSA have recognised that just the other day there in the, uh, their comments on that. So it's not set in stone. So if the FSA had been responsible for this situation, why are we going to give this uh, responsibility back to them? I've compared it a bit like uh, the situation with a surgeon. The FSA is a surgeon uh, with the banking community and it's chopping up and it's you know, watching it. But it's a surgeon who's got a part-time job as an undertaker saying, look, see if this operation doesn't go well, you're okay because I'll bury you well. So let's forget that. <laughs> So let's look at that again. It ain't all over yet till the fat lady sings. Okay, and the fact of the matter is, I'm doing my bit for international cooperation, Alec. Giving you my apologies, because I'm meeting the French ambassador at 10 okay. o'clock. <laughs> um, there's a gentleman who's had his hand up for a long time on the left-hand side in the one, two, three, third row back on here. Yep. Thank you very much. Uh, th thank you very much. John Cullinane from the Chartered Institute of Taxation and from Deloitte. Uh, I agree very much with uh, John McPaul's comments on tax, you know, basically I think calling okay. for a consultative approach and a, a sense of proportion. Um, my question though was, uh, aren't we in danger of throwing out the baby with the bathwater in the securitization area and simply kind of stigmatizing the whole thing and giving it a bad name? You know, th three or four hundred years ago, we discovered that you could rationally incur more equity risk by slicing and dicing it into little bits and having shares you know, on a stock market uh, in great public companies and as a result of that vastly more economic activity can be undertaken uh, because the risk is sliced and diced. It doesn't mean it ceases to exist, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. At that point because we're, we're running out of time. Yeah. So Tony, do you want to just comment on securitization, slicing and dicing and so on? Uh, yes, the, the, the reason we can't securitize at the moment is exactly the reason that Vince said earlier that there's no trust in the system. Uh, the whole credit crunch is a consequence of the entire Western world being absolutely saturated with debt. It's had enough, it's choked on it, it's got to deleverage to a certain extent before things can start moving again. And so it's too early to start 
revitalizing the securitization system because we still haven't got transparency. We still haven't got to the bottom of the problems. And until we do get that transparency, then trust won't rebuild. Once trust rebuilds, by all means, start it again. So the issue is not whether it should start again. The issue is one of timing, and I think it's too early. Gentlemen with the red tie here, I think this might be the last, um, last question. Mine is just a very broad point, coming back to the Matthew Fosh insurance industry. Um, uh, the, the debate was about how has, there seems to be a consensus that it hasn't, the Northern Rock thing hasn't in and of itself seriously damaged the reputation of the city. It is a little local difficulty in the UK. What has damaged the reputation of the city and what is and what will is if we get parochial about this industry and lose the global perspective. That's what did for our investment banking world in the 1980s. We had great investment banks like Warburg's, like Fleming's, like Schroeder's, like Morgan Grenfell. They've all gone because they lost their global perspective. And if we as a country, and it has to be the government, the regulators, all those who, who are involved in leading this, if we lose our global perspective and get parochial, we will kill the golden goose. And you, you write for a global audience every day, so can you just give a quick um, thought on that? Well, I also once worked for Flemings. And I say, I, I, I've always thought that what did for Flemings was it became too global. It had at one point, I think it boasted it had more offices globally than Citigroup. And I, ultimately, I think that um, it didn't manage to make much, uh, it, that network didn't really do it much good in the end. But um, I, I think, I mean, I agree that the city is, uh, um, is, is a, a global phenomenon, but I think that... Um, uh, but it also, and I think that part of the issue that happened of the Northern Rock issue, underlying part of that, is the extent to which that the city was um, uh, was uh, had a sort of there was a sort of pact with the devil, sort of during the last decade or so, with the Labour government, particularly where they said that uh, they would effectively leave the city completely alone and to get on with itself, and they would just pocket the taxes and spend it. And uh, and I think that there was a sort of complacency, and what has happened is that during the you know, this extraordinary boom took place, and the the, the public, the public sphere, completely lot, took their eye off the ball and failed to uh, understand the way in which the industry had changed. And I think they've had a very very rude shock in the last few months, and I think that what we've found is that our regulatory institutions are just simply not have not kept up with the global the global context of the city, and I think that. Uh, that that's a real challenge for the future, and I think that's what really will be the legacy of the Northern Rock. Julia, do you want to sum up? We need to finish, yeah, but okay. just to um, yeah. would just like to thank both Alex and every member of the panel for a really stimulating discussion. Thank you. Thank you.